Thank you, Barbara, for reminding us of the good things that God has done, the blessings that we count, and I count among them the gift of being able to come and share with you tonight. I love the story of the mom who was trying to wake up her son and get him ready for church, and uh, he said uh, what perhaps some of our kids have said. He said, I'm not going today. And she said, well, why not? And he said, well, let me just explain to you. First of all, they don't like me up there. And second of all, I don't like them. And she said, well, I understand. But let me give you two good reasons why you should go. First of all, you're 54 years old. And second of all, you're the pastor. So it's, um, it's good to get to come and share with you tonight. And particularly when I hear of other churches and their struggles, I would just say to you, um, it's great to get to share here with you. And I wonder, what would we do if we were assigned to some obstreperous group of people and our job was to somehow minister to people who didn't want to be ministered to, to be like Ezekiel who was sent to minister among the scorpions as, as he is told. God predicts that it will be like that for him. I'm grateful for the joy of getting to serve you. And I'm reminded that for Titus, things must have been a little bit tough. And I want to open the book of Titus with you tonight and read just three passages of Scripture we'll be looking as we have as our custom at the whole book of Titus. Tonight we're preaching one sermon on each book of the Bible, and we have made some progress. I have very little of my Bible left, and I want to make the most of each opportunity. So would you stand with me, and let's think together tonight about what is good Let's think about what is good. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Then I'll read in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Stay with me and I'll tell you when we move. Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at His appointed season He has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. I'm just highlighting the passages in which I think Paul describes the gospel, which is the foundation of his letter and so many of his teachings. 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good? I underlined that expression, what is good? 
These then are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone anyone despise you. Now let me pick up in chapter 3, verse 3. We're just skipping forward a few verses. Again, these are sections of teaching upon which he builds his argument. And in chapter 3, verse 3, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing, here's that expression again, what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Wouldn't you like a vacation to Crete? I mean, it sounds like it'd be a wonderful thing to do just to go to the island of Crete and spend some time and relax and enjoy yourself. If you were called upon to go and and be a a minister in in Crete, wouldn't that be a great thing just to enjoy? You know, I've always envied those people who went to those remarkable uh, resort sort of communities and their job was to pastor there. But, But for Titus, it was not an easy kind of ministry. And if you read the book of Titus, you realize that even though Crete might have been a very beautiful place to live, all was not well with the church at Crete. All was not well with the Christians in Crete. And Paul writes a letter to him. It comes after his letters to Timothy, though as I said to you last week, we don't believe that Titus was written after 2 Timothy, but probably sometime before. And Titus was one of Paul's protégés, much like Timothy. He was a Greek who had become a Christian who went with Paul to Jerusalem, who really sort of incited a controversy because he had not conformed to the Jewish law, and he became a confidant and a trustworthy protégé, and Paul was his mentor. And Paul sent him to Crete with the express purpose of helping people who were not very helpful to themselves people who um, had sort of mirrored the culture around them. They were a bit gluttonous, they were lazy, they were wicked, and Paul said, I told you it was going to be tough, and that's why I sent you there to straighten things out. And your job, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to lead them by teaching and preaching the gospel in such a way that you inculcate it in the leaders of that church and those cities on that island so that the leaders will then lead the people. 
And if you do your work well, you're not responsible for results, but the gospel, Paul believed, really does work. And what it does is enable people, empower people to do what they could never do on their own. So when he uses this expression, I was somewhere between here and Tennessee on a plane this summer. I'm reading through the Bible and the new NIV because there's so much conversation about it, I thought I ought to read it before I I comment on it. And as I was reading through it, this little expression captured my attention again and again. What is good? I'll just highlight a few of them for you just to see what what he was saying. And he, he talks about what is good. And what he says is that we are to do good things. But he doesn't say do good things in order to be saved. He says we do good things because we have been saved. So in Titus chapter 1, I was just reading along, and he's talking about um, those who are leaders, those who are elders, and he says they must love what is good in chapter 1, verse 8. Then in chapter 1, verse um, 16, he concludes that those who don't believe the gospel They are those who are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. But if you're going to teach, he says the older women should teach, chapter 2 of verse 3, they should teach what is good. Similarly, encourage the young men, verse 7, and everything set an example by doing what is good, he says. And uh, he says that Jesus Christ came, this gospel section that um, concludes there in verse 14, Um, Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And he says um, in chapter 3, verse 1, that remind the people to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. And then in chapter 3, Verse 8, in this trustworthy saying, we've seen these in First and Second Timothy as well, he says that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And then he concludes, near again, at the end of the letter there in chapter 3, verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. And I read that, and I was just sort of taken by that, and my mind began to wander. What does it mean to do what is good, and how in the world can we do what is good? And Paul expresses this overwhelming confidence in the gospel. Look, he knows Titus has got a tough job to do. We're going to see that the people in Crete, even the Christians in Crete, really weren't doing what they were supposed to do. But this is Paul's confidence that Jesus Christ came, and he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died so that we might transfer all of our trust in him and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that you and I would be empowered to do what is good. And he has this daunting idea that you also see in the book of Jeremiah in a negative sense, like leader, like people, and everybody like Titus, everybody who wants to be a member of a staff and lead and minister in a church has to be a a bit um, taken aback by that thought. The people will be like the leaders. But thankfully, Paul reminds us that our leader is very good. 
that Jesus Christ did what is good, not so that you and I could try really hard to do what is good, but, but so that by trusting in him, we would be empowered to do every good thing that God wants us to do. So notice first, just in the gospel sections, the way he describes our leader and what he wants us to see, I think what we cannot miss as we think about the gospel here is that our great leader, Jesus, empowered us to do good by giving his life up for us. God does not move us beyond the gospel, but God moves us deeper into the gospel because all the power we need in order to change and mature comes through the gospel. The gospel doesn't just simply ignite our Christian lives. It's not just a way to be saved or justified, we might say. But the gospel is the fuel as well as the ignition. It's the fuel that keeps Christians going and growing every day. Real change cannot take place apart from the gospel. So Paul three times builds on this gospel. So in chapter 1, verse 1, he talks about his whole calling being rooted in relationship with God, with Jesus Christ. And he says, my job is to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And God doesn't lie. And he promised. And in the appointed season, he brought to light um, through the preaching entrusted to Paul, the command of God our Savior, and he says this same God is giving us grace and peace. In chapter 2, verse 11, he reminds us all that God has done for us. The grace of God has appeared, offering salvation to all people. And this gospel and this grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled lives. And again, he points there in verse 14 to Jesus, whom he calls our great God and Savior. That's an interesting expression we find in Titus, God our Savior, he says again and again. And he's talking about Jesus, the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us from all wickedness, to pur purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And again in chapter 3, verses 3 to 8, he points again to the gospel and talks about the work of the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And he has justified us by his grace so that we who have trusted in God might devote ourselves to doing what is good. And if you ask me, how in the world will you and I do the right thing? I mean, we've been at this a while, and, and we want to do what's right. And then we identify with Paul in, in Romans chapter 7. Sometimes we think that's not only autobiographical for Paul, which is not a, a, a given, by the way, but then we sort of begin to say, that's just the way life is. I want to do good, but I can't. And, and I don't want to do bad, but I do. But Paul says the strength we need to do the right thing is resident in the gospel itself. It has always been God's work among us. And this raises a very important question for us as it did for Titus. What exactly do we preach? How do we define the gospel? D.L. Moody said, I can write the gospel on a dime. In his article, um, Michael Horton describes the results of a recent survey in Christian Century where they asked mainline pastors and theologians to summarize the gospel in seven words or less. There you go. What would you say? The gospel in seven words or less. Listen to what they said. We are the church of infinite chances. There's the gospel. 
according to one church. Another said, to dwell in possibility. That's the gospel, to dwell in possibility. Another one said, in Christ, God's yes defeats our no. But I love the one that Dr. Laman Sana, a Gambian scholar teaching at Yale, came up with. Here it is. Here's his gospel. God was in Christ reconciling the world. No other gospel but that gospel will save. No other gospel but that gospel will empower us to do what God has called us to do. It is as Eugene Peterson says, we wake into a world that we didn't make, into a salvation we didn't earn. And we have this great leader that he describes in chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there is no other. Jesus is the way. And I love that little poem. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day by deeds that you do, by words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to to you. And Paul says to Titus, the chance for your ministry to succeed doesn't rest in your ability or your charm or your charisma, but it rests firmly in the foundation of the truth which we preach, preach that Jesus Christ has reconciled the world. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And so he says to Paul, he says to Titus, our message works and in the churches there in Crete, I want you to develop leaders. I just want you to hear in verse 5. This is great. Wouldn't you love it if your boss walked into your office and said, "The reason you are here is" and just laid it out for you. You ever been in a job where you didn't know what you were supposed to do? Is there anything more frustrating in all the world? To walk into an office and sit down every day and think, I do not know why I'm here. One of our young people has gone back to work for her alma mater, and she was excited. What could be better than going back to the place where you graduate? But when she got there, she found out the people there were not ready for her. They were ready for her job in the fall, but they brought her on in the summer. And I was talking to her dad the other day, and her dad said she got there, and she looked around the room every day and wondered, why am I here? And maybe Paul writes the letter to Titus because Titus looks around this beautiful island of Crete and says, why in the world am I here? Why am I in these churches? Why did I come here? And Paul says in verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus, you have a purpose. You have a reason for being where you are. And the reason is to finish what was left unfinished and to appoint elders to confirm that. We've seen this sort of theme in First and Second Timothy as well. Paul saying, take the gospel that I entrusted to you and entrust it to trustworthy people who will entrust it to other trustworthy people so that the gospel will go down through the generations. Now, may I ask you, did Paul's plan work? We don't know a lot about the outcome in Crete. But again, the fact that we're here tonight 
means that it worked. That the gospel was entrusted to people who entrusted it to people who entrusted it to people. And you and I have come to believe in this very gospel. And he begins to describe these elders. And what I want you to notice about this description, we didn't spend a lot of time on this in 1 Timothy, and I won't spend a lot of time tonight, but I simply want you to see that he talks more about their character than he does about their charisma. And I just want you to lay that down beside the commonly viewed gift of leadership in churches in our culture. And I think there's a significant shift. Because for Paul, the elder, and by the way, this word elder, he even uses the word overseer a little bit further down in the passage. Uh, that's the word episkopos, the word elder, uh, presbyteron. You know, we get the word Presbyterian from it. Some churches are, are governed by a board of elders. Most Baptist churches are congregational. We got a bit of a view of that in our little forum. We get a, a view of that in our business meeting each month. And that is, we as a congregation make decisions together. Now, we trust a great deal of, uh, of leadership to our committees and they come and make recommendations and we either agree or we disagree but the amazing thing is we get to agree or we get to disagree and we get to say why we disagree and we don't always get what we want but we do get to say what we feel and not every church allows that but in this church there were elders and he uses the word overseers you'll see in Acts chapter 20 in in first Peter chapter 5 that that these words are used by Luke and Acts, by Peter in 1 Peter, and, and he uses the word elder and shepherd and overseer, and he almost uses them interchangeably. Now, I may be minimizing the distinction there because sometimes it's a verb and sometimes it's a noun, but for us to say, well, there's an office of elder, and there ought to be an office of elder in every church today, and there's an, offer, there's an office of bishop, and there ought to be a bishop in every church today, and there's an office of pastor, and there ought to be is probably to overstate the level in those early churches of organization. But I think there were functions. That is, there were people who were elders that were recognized leaders and they had the job of overseeing the church's spiritual life and they were shepherds. They, they weren't um, spit-shined, uh, polished. They, they weren't, it wasn't about their charisma it was about their character. And so he has specific descriptions of them. He says, the kind of person you would want for a leader. I'm hoping you won't be looking for a senior pastor anytime soon. But, but if you do, you might look at these things and, and just see what he says, that this person ought to be blameless and faithful to his wife. The children ought to believe and, and not be open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. An overseer manages God's household, so he needs to be blameless, not overbearing not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, you should be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who loves what is good. And what he says is that and those who are in leadership in the church ought to love what is good. They ought to love good things. In this case, it's the word agathos. Now, when he uses that same expression in chapter 2, verse 3, where he's speaking of the older women, it's a little bit different. It's, it's a different word for goodness. It's a word that sort of has the idea of beauty and beautiful. And the older women are to teach beautiful things to the younger women. But what he expresses to us here is that anybody who leads God's people ought to be so transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that they genuinely love what is good. They want to do good. It doesn't mean that they're perfect. I don't think that word blameless means that. But genuinely, more than they love possessions, 
more than they love power, more than they love pride, more than they love prestige. They love to do what is good. I think it's what Oswald Chambers was talking about when he said, if you ever find a person who puts Jesus first, knit your soul to that person. If you ever find a person who puts Jesus first, who loves what is good, that person is qualified to be a leader in the church, somebody who loves what is good, and he'll go on to say, somebody who teaches what is good. We ought to teach what is good. And he goes on to talk about doctrine and, and the way that we teach. And he, he sort of contrasts there the reality that, that um, in verse 9, he, he talks about he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Here's the truth about, about truth. It encourages those who love to do what is good. It also confronts those who are trying to do what is wrong. And so the one who's a leader, these leaders, he's to a point. So here's Paul's thought. We have a great leader, Jesus, who has given us a gospel that we entrust to leaders. And what kind of leaders are they? Well, they're people who love what is good. They are people who teach what is good. And so he will encourage both Timothy and Titus, be careful what you teach Make sure it accords with the gospel that I taught you from the beginning. I don't think he's dealing with fine points here. I I love the fact that we read Micah uh, chapter uh, 6, verses 6 through 8. Did I get that right? Is that what we read tonight? Because last week in my benediction in the early service, some of you may have heard me, and I got it wrong. And I said it was Micah chapter 6, verse 9. Well, Micah chapter 6, verse 9 isn't about um, doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God and I couldn't help. I was just walking through the children's area. I come down from my office between the services and all the children are gathered there. And one of the children was, was saying to his father, he was saying, shall we ever come back to this church, father? Because the pastor doesn't know the difference between Micah chapter 6 verse 8 and Micah chapter 6 verse 9. And it was a daunting moment for me. I shouldn't have just pulled it out of the air. I should have looked it up in the Bible so that I was sure. And you know, I'll never forget years ago, you remember Paul and Dot Woodruff. Some of you remember them well. And And I was telling the story of Wrong Way Regals, that poor unfortunate soul for Cal Berkeley back in the 1920s who who picked up a a ball and ran the wrong way on the football field. Had he not been tackled by his own man, he would have done grave harm to his team. He already did grave harm to his team. And I made the mistake of saying, and Cal Berkeley was playing against Notre Dame. And Paul Woodruff came up to me afterward, greatly disillusioned by me. And he said to me, It was Georgia Tech, Pastor. It was Georgia Tech. It wasn't Notre Dame. And I say to my homiletics students at at HBU, be careful that you get the details right because if they can't trust you about wrong way regals, they can't trust you about anything. And the Apostle Paul is saying to Titus, "You, you, you, you may not be right about the versification. And they didn't have football games back then. But be sure you're right about this. That Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. He's the only way of justification. He's the only way for sanctification. He's the only one who can make us right with God and the only one who can empower us to love what is good, to teach what is good, and beyond that, to live what is good. 
I was in one of our great uh, Baptist denominational meetings years ago and one man was nominating another and he said, you know what I love about this man? He was talking about Winfred Moore, the the pastor of my um, ancestral church where my great-grandmother was a charter member and, and, and Winfred Moore was a pastor to my grandfather in the latter years of his life and let him do craft work with the children in vacation Bible school. I've always loved Winfred Moore and his incomparable voice And he was nominating Winfred Moore. And this is what Richard Jackson said about him. He not only loves the truth, Winfred Moore not only preaches the truth, but Winfred Moore actually tells the truth. And I thought that ought to be a requirement for those who are in leadership among us, that they love the truth and they teach the truth. But don't you see that Paul is saying here, It is assumed that we will practice what we preach. And I heard a preacher of enormous oratorical gift many years ago stand before a great assembly of people and say, the world is sick and tired of preachers who say one thing and live another. And I watched within a couple of years that very same man with that golden voice and oratorical ability embody the very thing which he said was wrong. I am reminded of Calvin saying as he uh, approached the pulpit, John Calvin said, it would be better for me to trip on the stairs and break my neck than to say one thing and live another. It's a high standard. We understand that. But James says, don't let everybody teach because we're held to a higher standard. And Paul is saying, if you're gonna appoint leaders, let them be this kind of people. And he turns again to the gospel, and he shows us, I think, the stark contrast between the people. He quotes Epimenides there in, in, in chapter one, verse 12, and he says something that we might consider unkind. He says the Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And he's quoting now, he's, he's quoting Epimenides, one of the the, the philosophers who's describing Crete. And, um, and you and I might say that's a very unkind thing for Paul to say. The problem is I don't think any of us know any Cretans. So it might actually be um, actually kind. They might even be worse than that. But Paul is quoting that to say that's the way they live. But here's the astonishing thing. And by the way, Christians don't expect non-Christians, do we, to live the gospel if they don't believe the gospel We ought not to waste a lot of time on saying to non-Christians, why aren't you better than you are? How in the world would they be better than they are without Christ inside them, without the Holy Spirit empowering them to be sanctified? Now, we shouldn't be shocked when people outside the church live in ways that are absolutely contrary to the gospel. But we should be utterly astonished and amazed when Christians do and think that it's okay. And the Apostle Paul draws a pretty strong line here and says, you know, I know the Cretans are that way. I'm just a little surprised that the members of the church are that way. Having encountered Christ, why would they, why would they do that? In verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. You've always wondered where that came from. It's right there in verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. And he goes on to say, look, apart from Christ, they're unable to do anything good. And so he goes on to talk about doing good for the sake of the gospel, and and he he sort of age stratifies it. Why? Why does he have a message for the older men and the older women and the 
younger women and the younger men. That's the order. And then the slaves. And, and, and the answer is, because Paul knew what we must know, that there are differences in generations. I was speaking with a consultant friend of mine recently, and, and I said to him, why is it that our youngest families are not interested in business meetings? And he talked about how that affects not only the church, but how that's evident in our culture in, in interesting ways that would not have been true 50 years ago. And uh, as we consider this and consider what, what Paul is saying, he's, he's talking about these differences. And I just noticed a, a survey that said, um, uh, they asked people, is there a large difference between younger and older people in the way that they think? And 79%, up from 60% just 10 years ago, 79% said there's a huge difference between the way older people think and younger people think. And when you look at it, the continuity for Paul is this, though. He's very concerned that there be no reproach brought on the gospel. So he, he speaks about this, and, and he says, um, I want the younger women to be this way, chapter 2, verse 5, so that no one will malign the word of God. The great concern is not the way we feel, but that we might be empowered to do what is good through the, the word of God. We don't want any reproach to be brought on the word of God. And in everything, he says to Titus, you set an example to these young men by doing what is good. And when you do that and you live with integrity and seriousness and, and soundness of speech that can't be condemned, then those who want to oppose us won't have anything bad to say about us. He talks about the slaves and we could wish that Paul would have abolished slavery in one fell swoop here, but he, he doesn't do that. But what he does say is that whatever station in life, whatever, whatever gear we find ourselves in, in every way, we want the teaching of our God God our Savior to be attractive to the world. And that won't happen unless we live what we believe. He comes back to the gospel again and he says in chapter 3, verse 1, we're subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good so we don't slander. We're peaceable. We're considerate always. We're gentle toward everyone. And again, he talks about there was a time when we weren't that way, but Christ has changed us. So, verse 8, that we can devote ourselves to doing what is good. And he repeats that same idea. In the first little church I served, there was a man named Alvin Marek. I think I went to his house, he and Ann's house. I think it was the second Sunday that I was at that church. And many Sundays after that, he and I would go visiting in the afternoons. We would go to the nursing homes. We would go and share Christ with people. And then we'd come back to his house and drink a Dr. Pepper and and sit in his vinyl resting places there in, in, in two, uh, in two um, recliners there and watch the Dallas Cowboys back before there were Texans. And, and we, would, we would sit there and think together. And, and whenever I would ask Alvin how he was doing, he had this expression that I never had heard before him, but I came to love in my years of serving that church. He would say, I'm doing all the good. And he meant was what, he meant, I, I, I'm doing really well. Things are, things are good. I'm, I'm feeling well. I'm, I'm doing well. But he used that expression, all the good. Right before I left for sabbatical this summer, I got a call from uh, his daughter and, and his son and his wife, and they said, Alvin has passed away, and we want you to come and, and preach the funeral for Alvin. And, and I already had funerals lined up on several days that week. You remember that week this summer, we had, Larry remembers, five or six funerals that week. And, and it was terrible because they were in Rosebud. And I said, I can be there and I can do it if you can put it in this window of time on this particular day. And they said, done. 
And so I went and I thought, what will I say about Alvin Marek? What will I say about a man who, um, who absolutely loved God, who did good everywhere he went? I remember one day I was at his house when a hurricane came through here, Hurricane Alicia, maybe back in 83, what was it? And um, it spun off tornadoes up there in Rosebud. They made it all the way up to central Texas. And I was asleep in their uh, prophet's quarters there where they allowed me to come and stay. And, and I heard tree limbs banging against the window. And that day the tornado wreaked havoc on his farm. We didn't know it until we were eating supper and started smelling gasoline. And, and uh, the tornado had knocked over the gas tanks over by his barn and ripped the roof off of his barn. And and he smelled the gas and said, I'll go and check. And he came back and we finished supper. He never said a word. I said, so everything was okay? He said, no, it, it did some damage. The next day I saw the amazing damage that it did, but he was absolutely nonplussed by that. It, it, didn't, it didn't shake him in the least. One, one day he was at church. He was always at church early and he was, he was lighting the heaters on a cold day. And Melanie and I got there. We were uh, either engaged or newly married. I can't remember. And and he had a great bandage on his hand. And I said, what happened to you? And he said, he worked at General Tire there. And he said, I, had, he said, I lost uh, three of my fingers this week. And he said it so nonchalantly, I thought he was joking. I said, no, you didn't. And he turned and said, yeah, I did. And I thought, how can a man be so unflappable? What makes him the way that he is? And my answer to that is, is Paul's message to Titus. He was the way he was because our God is the way he is. And he had progressed in his sanctification. He was becoming good. And you know what I said at his funeral? I said, I know that Alvin is doing now what he's been doing for his whole lifetime. He is doing all the good because God had so transformed his life that the transition from this life to the next was not cataclysmic for him because he was so vested in the gospel and had so entrusted himself to the truth and it had so saturated every part of his life that leaving here and going there for him was no big change because the gospel had changed his life. And I know that you know that Paul believed in the gospel and he wanted Titus to believe in the gospel. I was just wondering if we do. I read about... um, the government of China back in the mid-1990s, their concern about a particular province, the Lahu province, the people in that area, strong addiction to opium um, to, to overcome their weakness. They would go to their priests, not Christian priests, but to their priests, and their priests would require an animal sacrifice, and they were so addicted and strung out on the opium that they would steal their neighbor's cattle and pigs so that they could make a sacrifice to overcome their own weakness. And it was devolving into absolute chaos in that province. And the Chinese went in, the government went in, and they used all kinds of propaganda, and it wasn't doing any good at all. But they noticed that there were certain pockets in Lahu where that was simply not the case. They had the same access to the opium, but they weren't doing that. And when they did a closer study to their chagrin... The Chinese government discovered those were areas where Christians were predominantly um, living. And so they did an unthinkable thing. In 1998, Chinese government had never done this before, but they went to those Christians and said, we're going to plant you in these other communities and we want you to tell those people what you believe so that maybe they'll be changed like you were changed. And the one 
sort of pilot village where there had been no believers before and there was rampant crime and, and addiction to opium. Within a year, there were 17 believers and there was a subtle shift. Of those 17, there was a change in their pattern of wealth. Eight of them owned sewing machines and had begun to work for themselves. By a year later, there were 83 believers and the whole climate of that city had changed and the Chinese government said, this works and we'll have to do this in broader places. It was kind of embarrassing to them because they'd been resisting the gospel for all these years, but they came to the conclusion the only thing that would change people who were addicted to sin, like the people in Crete who had this bad reputation, was for the gospel to be planted in the hearts of a few people so that then they planted that gospel in the hearts of a few more people until the gospel began to grow. And as the gospel grew, the culture would change. I don't know what your plan is. We've probably got a lot of ideas in this room about how we can change our world. But I dare say, we don't have a better idea than Paul had. That in fact, if we would, if we would believe in what is good and we would love what is good and we would teach what is good every chance we get and we would live what is good the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ would be so far above reproach that it would be attractive to people who don't even want to believe in it and that when they believed in it, their lives would be changed. And if you ask me how we change the city of Houston or the state of Texas or the country or the world, I have no better answer than Paul's. The gospel of Jesus Christ works. We don't go beyond it. We go more deeply into it so that through it, we are changed. And when we are changed, we change the world. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the amazing story of what God has done for us, what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Reborn, renewed by the Holy Spirit. Help us to live what we believe. Help us to live what we believe. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.